Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm here at RMIT University in Melbourne, and I'm the presenter of Talking Design. I'm here with a very interesting man called Lou Wise. I came across Lou by accident through an architect called Callum uh, Fraser, uh, director of Ellenberg Fraser, and he said, look, you should go and see uh, the new work that is showing at Lou's studio. So I made a time and went to see Lou and saw the most amazing collection of objects I've seen in a long time. So welcome, Lou, to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Lou, you're a graduate in literature from Melbourne University and also a postgraduate in screen uh, business. How did Brooch Commission start? What's what's Lou's journey? Uh, my father, Bob Weiss, uh, or Weiss, or Weissfellner, as he was born. In fact, he was born Michael Weissfellner. Uh, but he was a prominent film and TV producer through the 80s and 90s and, um, and you know, into his current life. And he said to me as a teenager that if I wanted to work in film, I needed to know the history of narrative. And so I started uh, uh, doing a literature degree. The Brooch Commissions really does emerge from that early period in my career where I was aspiring to be a filmmaker and I was doing a documentary about the relationship between architecture and media in the 20th century using Federation Square as a launch pad for that investigation as it was meant to be intended mm. as a, a kind of digital piazza. Uh, and that's why John Warwicker from Tomato was brought in to kind of build the digital experience into the fabric of the building, which didn't eventuate, much to the frustration, I think, of, uh, of John and others who were involved in the design process. And what I discovered was, you know, we, we filmed about 20 architects and academics, uh, Leonie Sandercock. Um, she yeah. wrote a book, quite a significant book. Yeah. Uh, Jan Van, um, Leon Van Skyk, I should say, uh, DCM, ARM, we interviewed them all. And I was, um, I think, 1998, I was probably um, 22, 23 at the time. And uh, what, what happened was we, we, we put together a, a package, sent it off to the ABC, and they said, oh, this is, this is really interesting, but we've just commissioned uh, In the Mind of the Architect, which was a TV series at right. the time, and we, we, we don't see a, a need for doing, two. for doing two, come back in 18 months. 18 months later, I'd sold my first large-scale show to an international arts festival, um, and I started doing... What was that about? Uh, it was called Microwave Nights, and it was uh, about building a, a media experience into the fabric of an existing piece of architecture. So it really did come from all of the research I'd done for that documentary. Mm -hmm. And I collaborated with an architect who was um, a friend of Jan Van Skyk's, uh, Michael Anderson, to... Um, was it Michael Anderson? No, Michael Anderson's... He does... He does uh, Something else. He, he, does, he does interiors with... Um, with Vernon Chalker, which is how I know him. It was a different, a different architect who I've never really known since. But we clad the archway, which has the Sunday market between the Art Centre and Hamer Hall, with a 20-metre rear pro uh, projection screen and made, it, uh, made what is a transitory space an event space. Um, we made the walkway from that, that moment of, of arrival uh, which can often be quite banal in that yeah. place, uh, an event, and one that also commented uh, politically and, and in other ways on, on the times, you know, as they were back in 2000. So then I, I basically spent the majority of my 20s 
um, creating large-scale temporary structures with architects. Uh, I collaborated with several architects on, on a variety of projects and, and continue to do so. An example of one that stands out for you, Lou? That I've done myself. Well, during that time. During that time. I would say the most successful piece that I collaborated on was with Jan van Skyk, and it was called Over Logo, and it was a giant one-day tram ticket that sat in what is now ACDC Lane. Fabulous. I remember it. Mm. And I actually uh, thought, why can't this be a permanent installation? It was so strong. Yeah, we we really nailed it with that one. And, And Jan and I started out by just walking around laneways and discussing the different kind of narratives that we thought would be appropriate. I was, I was quite interested in a more figurative narrative and Jan in a, in a hypergraphic um, logo-based one. And, and he ended up winning that, that, um, that discussion, which I was happy to acquiesce on. And, and, and then I said, well, let's, it's, a, it's a shoehorn uh, laneway um, from, I think it's Corporation Lane, then turns into what is now ACDC Lane. Yeah. And I said, well, why don't we do two pieces, one state, one federal example of defunct logos or graphical images. So we were going to do the old telecom sign, what is now Telstra, that kind of almost stool-like mm-hmm. uh, shaped um, that little seat that you well, like the two hands uh, and forearms kind of together, uh, but the, it would have we already blew the budget and the deadline. Doing one, doing two, we would have we would have quadrupled it, not just doubled it. When you see something like that overscaled tram ticket, mm. do you get despondent that it's such a temporary thing that you that it's not something that's a permanent fixture of the laneways, or do you see that's the beauty of the the art? What most of my work is focused on is trying to just jolt people out of their urban trajectory. So I don't know that if a permanent, if a piece is permanent, that it can achieve that. Something about you get used to it. Exactly. There is something about the temporariness of it. But I feel that 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 causes that shock and distance suddenly from what is an ordinary walk to lunch, to work, to the laundromat, to wherever. Mm. However, there is an enormous wastefulness in trashing such well thought out and... Beautifully conceived. And beautifully conceived work. Uh, Jan really got the scale right with that piece. Mm. And that's what I look to. Uh, So what would have been great is for the public transport operators to buy it and put it on one of the train lines, mm-hmm. you know, so that people passed it every day and yeah. and that would have made sense. So, Lou, just jumping a little bit, um, in terms of creating that excitement and that temporary excitement, mm. um, you were also creative director for the Design Festival in 2010. And mm. what was your vision for that festival? I inherited a somewhat troubled festival at that point. I was brought in in February uh, with the creative director and his deputy having exited uh, the stage midway through the programming year. I had spent four or five years up to that point leading into 2010, five years as a creative strategist. I'd stopped doing my own work for several years and I'd I'd been engaged as as a creative strategist in Amsterdam, New York, London and Sydney. 
And I'd just returned home about 18 months earlier and was doing that incredible, incredibly fast, uh, what feels like treading water in mm. order to reintegrate with what is a rather small and, and, and can sometimes feel quite stagnant uh, local creative industries. So uh, over those five years, I turned quite a few creative ventures around quickly. That was the, the small reputation I developed. And I think I was engaged in 2010 uh, in, all, in no small way, yes, because of my knowledge of the design sector, but I think also because I had a, a proven track record in delivering program fast. Mm-hmm. In terms of vision, it was very difficult to move it from what it was, which was a, a, a series of marquee uh, um, content streams. So Product. Well, no, it was design made trade, design for everyone. Um, and then and there was like four brand names under the one brand name of State of Design that was for different people, different audiences. So and what what makes a successful design festival? Because they are challenging and, and people are trying to broaden the audience and get as many people interested in design as possible. What makes a great design festival? Well, you need... It depends. Let's look at the word festival. It's it's meant to be festive, right? So it's a celebration. And to celebrate, you need a location for people to go where they're going to feel like the, the opportunity for surprise, either amongst the crowd and in, within the content itself that they've paid or have decided to travel to experience, uh, is, is going to be possible. State of Design was essentially a, a fringe festival model which does no fringe festivals except within very small uh, cities like Edinburgh, um, offer, or Adelaide, offer that sense of proximity to the wider audience because a fringe festival is basically a, a massive buffet and, and, or it's, it's even different to that. It's a buffet where you bring your own plate. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that for design... Uh, in a city like Melbourne, which is geographically very diffuse, you need a, a conceptually rigorous program that is also geographically very carefully located so that people can make a conceptual journey that is mirrored by the movement through the urban terrain. So you need, basically, in a more simple way, you need uh, probably five exhibitions, uh, and five major events. So less is more. Less is more, and they need to be geographically quite tightly located, or the organisation of the transportation of people needs to be extremely well organised. Mm-hmm. So if it is going to be some kind of program in Dandenong or uh, Broad Meadows, as the Victorian mm-hmm. Eco Innovation Lab aspired to do during my festival, then... Great uh, transport connections. Great transport connections. Bussing people out there, really making the entire experience from um, embarking mm. to disembarking um, extremely mm. seamless. Um, it's it's an interesting area because it is a challenge, and every year, uh, you know, I go to the design festival and some of the things, and sometimes I feel it's well. There's some great attributes to it. I, I see sometimes there's a lot of just product being sold, and it's an excuse to sell product rather than celebrate actually creative, creative outlets. The other thing I was going to I I want to talk about brooch commissions because I, I it is quite an unusual uh, concept. Uh, the thing that 
probably reminds me closely, it reminds me of, if, if I didn't make an, um, a comparison, would be the um, Galerie Creo in Saint-Germain in Paris, who represents uh, people like Mark Newson and leading designers. And it has that very almost art-based design quality. How did that start, Lou? I had a, I remember in 2005 I was working in New York uh, doing a consultancy and reflecting with, and it was kind of the start of our friendship becoming very close, Gideon Obazanek, the choreographer. Mm. From Chunky Moves. Yeah, uh, formerly now from mm. Chunky Moves. Formerly. Uh, and he, I'd only done very large projects. I had no studio practice. Uh, coming from film and TV, which is an industrial process, I'd always developed an idea, built a team around it, raised the money and delivered it. And it was usually, really from the age of 24 onwards, there was no project under probably $150,000, which in installation art... It's quite a lot. ...is a lot. And for a kid, <laughs> it was more than I probably should have been dabbling in. Uh, so... What he said to me is that without, you know, those big projects are only meant to be the ones that happen every once in a while and that you're meant to scale up from a studio practice which is constantly informing what can then bubble up into the larger, more public, general public-facing work. And being essentially trained as a creative producer, I, I was not sure how to achieve that and it took me another four years uh, and really the luck of being selected to consult to the Australia Council for the Arts on product design, which is not something I'd ever considered working in, that I realised that I could, instead of working all the time with architects, because that comes on such a, a larger industrial scale, mm. I could work with product designers and have a frequency of output uh, with my conceptual process remaining intact uh, that that would be far higher. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to spend years waiting for the projects to be approved by various levels. So, Lou, how did you select the people to join broached commissions? Because well, there's... Yeah. Uh, I mean, the line-up's pretty impressive. Basically, there was a mixture of organic confluence of interests. Uh, Adam Goodrum and Trent Jansen approached me to do an exhibition in Melbourne and could I help them? And I said, that sounds really boring. I don't want to do that, but I can link you with some gallerists and you can go off in your own, own merry way. And then I realised that my process, which stems back to the work I was mentioning earlier with Jan and, and Joyride with uh, Studio 505 and, uh, and so forth, is my process is I develop a... a a conceptual narrative that I then ask designers to respond to and form. So I am a storyteller and they are form generators and I like the meeting place of those two processes. So what was the story for the first Broached Commissions? The story for Broached overall is that Australia is a, is a participant, certainly since white settlement, in global industrialisation and that we have experienced in our own peculiar way each wave of industrial transformation and the design trends that have accompanied that. Because design responds to industrial innovation through, through material use and transformation and the way in which we build our spaces. So 
what what we decided to do with Broach was to establish a series of commissions. It won't it won't define it for its entire life, but maybe for the first five to seven years, a series of commissions that focus on pivotal industrial shifts in global history, mm-hmm. but from the Australian perspective. So it's all about the way in which ideas change. The parallel parallel evolution of ideas when they arrive in a new place and get stuck there and grow on there in, in a new space. So tell me some of the um, the designs in the in the Broach commissions, the Broach Colonial, the Broach Colonial that mm. actually started that process. I mean, there's there's just too many to cover. But if you look at say. Um, this is an interesting one, the, the prickly lamp, mm. which was... Um, Lucy McRae. Lucy McRae, and made of hundreds of pieces of... Uh, hundreds dyed, of thousands. Hundreds of thousands of dyed mm. wood. It almost looks quite feathery until you actually touch it. And yeah. then you realise that it's... Um, prickly. It's prickly, mm. and uh, it's quite striking, but it has that eerie quality. How does that capture the past? And what was some of the words that kind of... Uh, resulted in this design? The, bro- the broached process is to engage a curator who's a scholar and expert in the period that I've chosen to mm. focus on. So John McPhee would provide the words to the designers once we'd selected them. Mm. Lucy is a guest designer. There's three core designers, Trent Jansom, Adam Goodrum and Charles Wilson, and they kind of have first right of refusal and participation in each, mm-hmm. in each group collection. Then once John has, uh, in this instance, because we're working with Susan Kind, we want to always work with one curator, we'll choose them based on their specialisation. But once the curator has provided an essay that lays the groundwork for our understanding of the period, that's how we start thinking about who would be appropriate for as guest designers. Mm -hmm. Because the colonial period is about the difficulty of pioneering with limited resources, limited tools, Lucy McRae, who is an Australian expat living in Amsterdam and creates skins for foreign environments that aren't really identified, but you you just sense that these skins have become necessary for one reason or another. And she uses the most rudimentary of objects multiplied many, many times to create a new effect uh, and a new seeming functionality of the object. Uh, She was perfect because the the colonial period required that kind of make-do mentality. We were sending her information probably a little skewed towards the ghastly and awful rather than the um than than the than the celebratory nature of the spirit to overcome that mm-hmm. uh but we were sending her, sending her information about in particular the enslavement and the abuse of women in the in the Parramatta factory uh the difficulty that they confronted just as soon as they got off the the boats Mm-hmm. Uh, the convict women in the very early days. So, so what the prickly lamp is a is a skin, a protective skin against predators. Right. Yeah. It's it's quite haunting. It is. It's, it's not something you'd you know you'd want to caress. <laughs> no, and it's drawn. I mean, we've sold a few of them and installing yeah. them myself in in the clients' uh, homes. They've draw, They have drawn blood 
Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> you, is there a warning tag? Yeah, well, you don't, you don't, I mean, they're not that hard to move once they're put together, yeah. but they're, they're, uh, they're, they're tricky to put together. The other person who's interesting is Trent Jansen, yeah. who's done this tea set. Some of the cups, for instance, are, uh, as, a, as a holder, are actually made of fur. So there's obviously, you know, connections to wildlife in a, in, and fauna and flora in, in early Australia. Um, how did that evolve? Trent is probably the designer most well suited within the core group to the narrative driven nature of the venture. He is. He worked with Marcel Wanders. He worked with Marcel Wanders, is clearly a very narrative driven Dutch designer. Mm. For Trent, if there's not a story, he can't start designing, basically. He was interested in using a family of objects like a tea service to tell the story of a real-life family. And for him, what was most fascinating about the colonial period was that very initial, brutal uh, collision between Indigenous Australia and, and the colonialists. So he, he found... Uh, he does an enormous amount of reading and research and he settled upon the Briggs family, very famous family from uh, uh, northeast Tasmania, I believe. And, and his research was, was so extensive, I, I couldn't possibly do justice to the depth of it now. But basically the tea set is a representation of that first union between George Briggs and the daughter of uh, an indigenous elder of the of the northeast Tasmanian area and the family that they had together and Dolly Dalrymple being you know the first known or or the first kind of I don't know what would be known what does yeah. that mean in that time maybe most famous yeah. uh, result of a of of a mixed race union uh, of that time and and lived an incredible life and so the fur the wallaby pelt the use of bull kelp as well and brass is is representative of the commodities of that time for both communities yeah. uh wallaby pelt was used as clothing bull kelp was used by the indigenous people of that area to carry water it was dried and molded into into um, bowls and so forth and the porcelain uh, was the was the water carrying vessel of of the English and of Europeans. Um, Lou, who's actually buying these pieces? They're limited edition. Mm. Uh, galleries, museums, or is it just people with a really fine eye who want a great story as well as a beautiful, beautifully designed piece of work? Who's buying? We would you don't have to give me names. No. <laughs> obviously. But who's attracted to this very bespoke work? They, they are art collectors and they are... We, we, we did a, we did a, you know, as any company would, you, you do a buyer analysis before you've even launched the company just to try and get your head around who you should be uh, talking to. And really, we had probably had about three or four demographics that we thought would come in, but the one that stood up most strongly and, and supported what, what we're doing were entrepreneurs in their 40s, mm -hmm. 30s and 40s, because it made sense once it happened. I didn't think about it earlier, but in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. These entrepreneurs like this uh, are building narratives every day. 
That's what mm. they do. And they have to sell the story to mm. their investors if they have them, to their staff, to So these are stories buy. that they could latch on to. Yeah, and they mm. and 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 they're they're people who who are excited by new ideas. Mm. And 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 their age is important, I think, because they're still in a state of high acquisitive activity. Mm. Um, whereas People in there who are older probably stop collecting to yeah. a certain extent. I suppose when you get to sixty, you say enough. Yeah, you know. you're probably giving it to the grandkids yeah. and the kids, and I the mean, kids wouldn't appreciate a, a wallaby-covered T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. But so that I mean, but yeah. but what's been wonderful about who has been buying on the whole uh, is that it's led to other dialogues, and they're the kinds of people who we just find fascinating ourselves. I mean, there's a wonderful book, All That Solid Melts Into Air by Marshall Berman. He posits that the entrepreneur is the quintessential modernist figure, and he tracks that person through uh, through history from Peter the Great and the, the development of St. Petersburg to Faust and his role as a town planner in book two of Faust to uh, Moses, the, the town planner of New York, and, and that that figure has been quintessentially modern. And I think that um, entrepreneurs are often not are misunderstood in Australian society and are so, so important to the, life, yeah, the lifeblood of, of, yeah. of, the, of the country. You're now planning um, the second series of broached commissions? Yes. And so that will be up and running in a couple of months? Hopefully. We let that process grow quite organically. Uh, It's important not to rush it because we're claiming such enormous... The the pieces are claiming an enormous relationship to a period which in itself is momentous and, and, and historically significant. So we're looking this time at our relationship to the region during the Victorian period. So... The, the second half of the 19th century and starting with Chinese migration to the gold fields and then the consuming Victorian middle class who really latched on to the products that were being exported from Japan after the major restoration. Towards the end of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, Lou, how do people find out about brooch commissions? I mean, you have a gallery in um, studio in Burke Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a website. Mm-hmm. And so people can just Google you and... and yeah, they can go to broachcommissions.com. At, at the moment, we because we've only got the one show on until the, until the second one hits, mm. we, we're just doing private tours, but it's completely open really? to anyone, whether they're buyers or not. Uh, designers, design students, we're really happy to welcome people in and and have that discussion because next uh, later this year and next year we will be launching a more comprehensive program of of exhibitions and uh, it will be more public facing yeah. once that happens and it's a really lovely stage now to get people in who are that passionate end of the spectrum and. Um, want to provide, not just have a look, but are interested in, in having a chat. Lou, I think it's fabulous what you're doing. Thank really you, excited. And um, I think what's happening in design generally is people don't want just a great story, but they want to see beautiful things that are really well executed. So, I, you know, I think this is an example where you get both. And you can really see the stories in each piece. So, um, look, thanks so much for coming in. And... Um, Look forward to seeing the next Brooch Commissions. Thanks so much, Stephen. You've been with Stephen Crafty, RMIT University, Talking Design. Look forward to next week.